Hello, and welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the premier video podcast of the Macdonald Laurier Institute, Ottawa's most influential public policy think tank. Learn more about our work at macdonaldlaurier.ca. Welcome to Inside Policy Talks. This is Dr. Balkan Devlin. I'm the director of Inter- uh, Trans- uh, Transatlantic Program here at MLI. And today I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Richard Shimuka, who's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Richard, welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, so uh, today we will talk about the recent announcement that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, and uh, Defence Minister Anita Anand uh, made in, in Riga prior to the Vilnius NATO summit in Vilnius, uh, identifying the roadmap for enhancing the uh, NS Forward Presence uh, mission that Canada is the framework nation in, in Latvia. They announced a roadmap uh, that lay out uh, how uh, Canada will uh, you know, take its, uh, its, its leadership role uh, in the mission further and bring the, uh, the NS Forward uh, uh, Presence there from a battalion um, size uh, in a, a group to a brigade um, size group. Um, so today I want to talk a, a little bit on that, uh, on, on that particular roadmap, uh, you know, what it, what it contains, uh, is it achievable, um, what needs to be done to meet the commitments that, that we made back in Madrid. Um, and it, it took a little while uh, for us to specify how to how are we going to up our up our strength over there, and and why it is important uh, for Canada and Canadians uh, to be able to fulfill the particular promises that that we made both in Madrid as well as in this new uh, new roadmap. So maybe uh, we can start with with the roadmap, what it what it contains, what are the sort of key elements. We don't necessarily need to go one on one on everything, and, and we'll be happy to put the. Uh, the link to the actual agreement on the show notes, and people can go and check it out. But what are the key elements there uh, that that Canada promises uh, to our our Latvian uh, allies uh, in terms of strengthening the and has forward presence uh, in Latvia? Certainly. So uh, it's basically a, a plan that sort of lays out a increase, a gradual increase of Canada's uh, deployed forces in Latvia, currently at around 800 or so, to around 2,200. And it, it's going to be a slow go. It's going to take three years uh, for Canada to sort of build up the forces to train and prep the existing forces to be ready to sort of deploy and then be deployed as well as building up the facilities in, the, in Latvia in order to effectively have a permanent presence for the foreseeable time being. And that phase approach sort of has three phases. Uh, third phase, obviously, is the steady state, which is the, the final deployment. But, we, but the critical part is sort of building the Canadian forces to be able to deploy there. And, and I think that's the part that a lot of people are sort of looking at or, and are really wondering. Because if we look at the Canadian forces right now, uh, even the 800 troops or so that we've got in theater, uh, which has some sort of advanced capabilities, such as uh, a increase in the tanks, uh, sorry, tank squadron, this is going, this is already having a significant straining effect on the Canadian forces. Uh, it's using a lot of it, sort of the most advanced equipment that we have, but there's significant areas where the Canadian forces does not have capabilities that it's going to require to be a effective sort of uh, useful actor in the field for our allies and in the defense of, you know, Latvia and the Baltics. 
and and the questions surrounding that are the ones that are that are most interesting because without any sort of some that were not addressed some of them are addressed but the devil's is obviously in the details and and how canada is going to sort of put together that force even in three years which in terms of a military deployment time is actually quite a long time uh the ability of canada to actually meet those the requirements or the the needs in the field is is not exactly clear clear and and i think a lot of people are wondering about that who are who are aware of what Canada can do and what's needed in the field. Uh, I mean, let me just sort of uh, get into details a little bit and um, to understand in, in, in a better way. So no, this is uh, sort of the culmination of you know, promises that were made in, in, in Madrid Summit um, that will bring the, um, the enhanced forward presence uh, missions in, in, in the Baltics and in, in Poland to a brigade level. And other allies are making, you know, announcements germans did it for example for lithuania uh, that they will be deploying four thousand troops we'll see how that will develop and when and how etc and um and of course the, the brits in, in estonia uh, will need to bring it up to um to the brigade level as well and americans are already in in, in poland with, with substantial numbers more than that at any rate so um it is important to be able to get to a brigade level for for the audience could you maybe give a, a sense of what do we mean by when we talk about a brigade level uh, how many troops are we talking about what will be the sort of the shortfall if you, you know, include a 2,200 uh, Canadian troops, what will be the shortfall and how are we going to sort of figure it out? And, uh, and then we can expand a little bit on what are the, uh, what, what is missing from this, this roadmap? What is, what will be the sort of the, the necessary capabilities uh, for that, uh, for that uh, the brigade to be an effective fighting force um, and ideally less than a three-year uh, three period, which will, will come in a minute. So first, maybe what do we mean by brigade? And then second, now how, how can we get up to, to that particular uh, number? Uh, because 2,200 will not be enough. Certainly. So a brigade is about 5,000 troops. And I mean, it usually requires a, a panoply of sort of capabilities. We're not just talking about infantry that carries, you know, the rifles. We're talking about tanks, you know, as we talked about the uh, Canadian sort of deployment of, of uh likely around 20 tanks or so. Uh, you're talking about artillery systems, air defense systems uh, at all levels. Uh, and this is a kind of a critical point that we'll circle back on. You're talking about command and control, intelligence, uh, logistics is a uh, core uh, consideration. So you're looking at a whole wide range of capabilities that will sort of basically make the, the brigade an effective actor in, in any sort of conflict. Uh, right now, Canada's kind of struggling with some of those aspects. Now, part of it is that we're not going to, at 2200, we're not going to provide a full brigade. We're basically providing a half brigade. And we're looking at some of our other allies. I believe the Danes and whatnot are actually, are being, are being sort of pulled into this to, to fill out our circuit capability. Canada's not going to be able to put a full, uh, full brigade in with its current force structure. Uh, even in, during, during our years in Afghanistan, we would have, which was probably the height of the Canadian Army's uh, post-Cold War uh, sort of force structure, they, even they would not be able to sort of do that. It, it's, we have what's called a managed readiness structure, which basically is designed to uh, allow the deployment around 2,000, 2,500 troops uh, consistently without having to, uh, with, with being able to sustain that permanently without actually having to turn around and, uh, and have a shortfall in the future. Uh, there's questions where again it can do that. We we are clearly undermanned, ten uh, percent if if not more in some key sort of um, uh, key sort of manning areas. Um, 
so Canada's sort of contribution is going to be the 2000 troop. The problem is, is if we look at how conflict is occurring in Ukraine, we look at the proliferation of uh, unmanned aerial combat vehicles, drones. Uh, we look at just how heavy the artillery usage is, where we're seeing tens, if not hundreds of thousands of shells per use per month in order to sort of conduct operations, not just short range artillery shells, which is the 155 millimeter, but uh, shell or gun, but also a longer range sort of uh, deeper strike weapons like HIMARS, ATACMS, those sort of systems. They're all part of a broader combat capability that a modern brigade needs. And it's areas that Canada's really deficient in. Another area that's even more uh, substantial is, is our command and control systems, which really need updating. And there's an ongoing program uh, colloquially known as uh, SSC-42, which is basically, uh, it's about, I think, five or six separate, uh, separate sort of systems that can Canadian Armed Forces are looking at to acquiring. And they need to get them now in order to sort of operate effectively in coordination with our allies. And these systems are somewhat, they haven't been acquired. They're, they're still in sort of the acquisition phase. Whether or not they'll get into the field in time is, is an open question. It's, it's not clear because we are delayed on the acquiring of major capabilities like this. So this is, I, I've kind of thrown a lot of sort of cap, uh, capabilities on the table here, but in, in, in truth, you know, if we're looking at the environment that the, this force is, is going to need to operate in if it ever sort of turned, you know, turned hot or it turned violent, the Canadian forces may have the raw numbers of troops to sort of deploy, but some of those key capabilities, many of which our allies are buying or have sort of been ramping up to buy, uh, we just don't have them or, or we're, we're delayed on the acquisition for them. So uh, this is, that's kind of the, the spiel on where we are, what's needed, what's the size of this force, where, where are the sort of capabilities that you'd be looking at? Would that create a vulnerability in the in the eastern flank in the sense that if you think about those four uh, EFP missions and then the, the four new ones, of course, um, and especially if they are each you know getting into brigade level and, and and if they are you know properly equipped in in, in other parts of that, um, you know, given the fact that we may not be able to sort of uh, field those capabilities, even if we want to buy them, you know, that, you, know it's, you can't order them through Amazon. Um, it is it's not so. It's, uh, what would be the sort of uh, vulnerability that would create uh, and how that actually meets uh, with, with the needs to um, to fulfill our commitments uh, to our to our NATO allies? And, and of course, you know, I'll be happy to talk more and get into details what you think uh, might be uh, a realistic way to ensure that the you know Canada-led uh, EFP mission uh, is not the one ends up being a weak link in that in that chain. Certainly, it's, it is vulnerability. I mean. If we aren't sort of seamlessly interoperable, is, is sort of the, the term is used, it, it makes our unit less able to sort of operate effectively in the battlefield. I mean, clearly the Russian Federation is weaker than they were about three years ago, right? Uh, because of the war in Ukraine. But if we look at some of the capabilities that they are deploying en masse, even in their weakened state in Ukraine, we don't even have challenges towards them. We don't have, we have a counter for them or ability to sort of degrade them. Uh, if you look at how modern sort of warfare is being prosecuted and fought, the, the, the command and control side is absolutely critical. You see the United States Army uh, investing billions in programs that are they're designed to sort of integrate dispersed amounts of information from sources, you know, whether it be aerial or you know, space-based sources, whatnot, and bring them into a sort of seamless picture of the battlefield. We're just not there yet. We're not even close to being there. And, and 
our our contribution in a place where clearly we are the enhanced force of presence we are we're right at the border with russia uh would require us to be able to operate in sort of as good level as the united states in anticipation for war there's no point to actually deploy something if we're just unable to actually operate effectively it's it's a disservice to our allies it's a disservice to the service men and women that we put in harm's way so in this case we are sort of we are potentially a weak link in that sense i mean there's so many other areas we we have three current un, um urgent operational requests that are that are ongoing on anti-tank systems uh counter uav and and, and short-range air defense systems that they were supposed to be done within a year. This, this was highlighted a year ago as the war sort of un, unfolded. And instead of actually filling them, they've now decided, well, we're going to have to run a competition for these, which was going to add another year, if not more, to sort of acquiring systems, which means that when we actually do get them and put them into service, it actually puts more pressure on the Canadian, on the troops that are potentially going to go in the first sort of waves of this increase in enhanced foreign presence. And it's going to cause them issues with their training, their sort of, you know, their rushed code of deployment. They're not going to be as, as sort of well, uh, as ready to sort of utilize them. And, and this is all going to sort of, snow, this is all going to snowball because if we're just going to rush and sort of deploy stuff uh, on, or with minimal training or early training, right, it's, it's not as effective. I, it's, it's kind of a repeat of what we saw during the Afghanistan operations at the very early stages where we start showing up with green uh, uniforms and Iltis Jeeps when we're starting to already see uh, IED, uh, improvised explosive devices, which these vehicles are not effective to be used at, or our camouflage is really not, it, it makes us stick out in, in this terrain as a store thrum. It's the same sort of same sort of problem. It's just we are we're kind of behind the eight ball. We're rushing to catch up with this when a lot of the stuff was known eight years ago that we needed a replacement or we need a replacement for these systems and that. And and this has really become a challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think you, know, you have been pointing out uh, in in your writing and and in, in, in your commentary uh, that this is more much more of a structural issue that we need to be we need to be addressing. But I think it's also within the within the FB uh, context, it's also quite important to be able to fulfill the the, the commitments to our NATO allies that we made. Um, and even with these sort of limited, uh, uh, you know, commitments that are announced in the roadmap, like you pointed out, maybe half a brigade there, they're not very clear. Uh, at least from the text uh, that I can see, you know, very specific, uh, you know, capabilities that are announced. And I don't know how it's going to go there. Uh, and a long um, time frame, you know, three years, uh, which uh, very conveniently happened to uh, end in 2026 after the next election. So uh, the, the government may or may not need to uh, be the one who need to deliver that by, 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 the, by the deadline. I'll um, be honest with you. I just, just interject there. I, I actually don't think that that was even consideration because I think that's how long it's actually going to take. Wow. I mean, this is that uh, to in order to even get them to a level where they are a an effective unit that they can actually provide effective sort of you know defense capability with with because we don't have some of these critical capabilities yeah. ready to go. Uh, I think the three year time frame is basically the best we could do. I, I, that's, I, I can go into specific, uh, a couple of the specific systems, but it's, it's, that's just the reality. And, and it's not unlike what happened with the original deployment for enhanced forward presence, where just getting 700 troops took over a year to deploy into, in, into Latvia because the command and control system at the time were again, not up to date. 
uh, key capabilities were not there, and it caused the Canadian Armed Forces significant challenges to to be to be basically deployed in, into the into the region. Yeah, I mean, I want to ask two questions on this one. Actually, one one uh, particularly about the, what's called persistence presence rather than a permanent deployment. Do you think it would make uh, a difference rather than you know uh, deploy uh, the troops for like six month rotations if we deploy them uh, in a full term in a sort of three year uh, uh, deployments, would that make uh, a difference in terms of uh, because they have more you know, in and out? You know, you you you're talking effectively of maybe three three and a half months of 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 work. Um, uh, but if you do have a permanent uh, permanent deployment there, that might actually enable uh, because it's also a very large and very very diverse uh, EFP. Right, we have what, 10, 11 uh, nations. Um, as a part of that and be able to work with them in the long term. And it might may perhaps help if we have permanent uh, deployments, long-term deployments, uh, with the recruitment as well, I don't know. Um, you're, you're the military expert on that, but would that make a difference if uh, our commitments are are not uh, just a six-month deployment, but announcing that we will deploy those those troops for say a, a three-year uh, you know, um, deployment? Yeah, so that sort of draws in some much more bigger considerations. Uh, one of the biggest ones, because this this would basically bring it back to where we have the Fourth Canadian Mechanized Brigade Group. I have the number there uh, in um, in Germany in the Cold yeah. War and sort of the deployment there. Uh, so then you're bringing questions about families. Uh, you know, are we going to have? Uh, are we going to be able to bring families and have them live in? You know, in Lafayette or whatever, uh, possibly. But given the given the position of the enhanced war presence, a little bit different than um, than in Germany because you're right on the front. Not that not that conflict we would anticipate conflict, but the fact that they were there. Do you want to have families in Lafayette nearby, right? And how do we sort of build that out? That's going to be a significant larger cost because then you're looking at not just you know barracks, but you know potentially family quarters or whatnot. So. That's one area. I, I believe it change, requires some significant changes. There are significant changes to how we sort of look at um, uh, just for pay rates and what uh, uh, and and other areas. Not as clear into this areas as as others would be, but certainly I know that that would be an area that would be a consideration. So, uh, going beyond the six month, you know, cycling uh, and sort of that kind of aspect kind of brings in different challenges, right? Uh, and my, not... my, my anecdotal sort of, um, <laughs> uh, you know, data on this is when you talk with a few people uh, that were deployed uh, previously or deployed again, because a lot of these uh, troops were had multiple deployments to Rika themselves. Um, seems to be that they're actually, you know, they, they, they might be quite interested in that, being able to bring the families. And of course, Rika is, 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 a, is a lovely place to, um, to live in very you know the, the relationship is, is, is of course excellent so uh, on the anecdotal level there seems to be a uh you know would be you know, would be happy to see something like that rather than being deployed the fourth time uh across three years uh absolutely no absolutely and, and and the the sort of the management cycle and sort of undertaking this operations uh is 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 harmful, not harmful, but it certainly is a challenge for the Canadian Forces. I think there's going to be real personnel struggles to mm -hmm. sort of keep filling the sort of keep this within the cycle. Uh, just knowing where the Canadian Forces are, I wonder if other missions are going to be reduced even further uh, just to just keep it going because that's what happened in Afghanistan, the years in Afghanistan, right? Yeah, uh, you, Canadian Forces really had one mission and just was doing everything it can, especially in some of the specialist areas. 
just to continually fill these kind of these uh, these capability sets that are not not very um, that are sort of in demand. So stuff like let's say uh, cyber warfare or you know intelligence, right? The Canadian Forces is basically now going to just be focused on this mission set. And if we're doing this as a kind of a six-month rotational cycle, it's going to be a challenge, right? Whereas, if, as you're right, if we have a three-year sort of one three-year sort of term or whatever, right, it, it does decrease the requirements um, or it decreases the sort of pressure on the Canadian Army and, and the Canadian Forces writ large on on sort of sustain this. And and absolutely right, I think that a lot of a lot of individuals would be interested in in sort of a longer deployment if they can have families, if it's not as if it's not as austere as it currently is, not saying it's austere, mm -hmm. it badly as this isn't, you know, we're not talking about gas, but certainly it's, it's, we don't have as many permanent structures. These are sort of, you know, uh, a base that is, that is sort of uh, was built kind of in parts, right? We have a more sustained thought out sort of, you know, approach to this and a more permanent presence yes. that we're foreseeing this for, you know, about two, three, four years, but we say we're going to be here for 10 years, clearly. Yeah. Uh, it makes it easier for the force planners to sort of put this together, uh, put together a concept of operations, a concept of the sustainment and all that, and, and sort of make this a more sort of comfortable and effective also um, capability that we're um, that we're putting into the field. I mean, I, on that, I mean, perhaps sort of a bigger bigger picture uh, is, is that as each of these uh, these missions are going up to brigade level, again, you, you, you're the military expert on this, but to me, it feels like... Um, you know, uh, coordinating within a, in a, when a battalion size is already hard with multiple, you know, different uh, groups with different, you know, uh, engagement roles and with different equipment, with different <laughs> everything else. Scaling up even within the mission themselves to brigade level would require uh, much more time to be able to work together effectively. And especially if we think about across you know, Poland, Estonia, you know, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, Estonia for those groups to work together. You know the whole idea of of working not you know separately but also uh, in, in in a continuity together would require uh, you know perhaps exercising a lot more and and, and so on and so forth. So you know uh, it, unless I would say perhaps all those uh, troops are are more permanently deployed, uh, it will be very hard to be able to get into that particular habit of of working together as in, in, in a coherent, coherent, coherent way. So I think there is a bigger regional sort of defense uh, lens here as well that, um, that, that we need to take. And there's something that I have been making you know, the arguments for in, in different places is that we also sort of uh, get rid of the Russia uh, and Asia Founding Act of 1997 officially as well, and then start deploying permanently bases uh, in, uh, in, in, in the eastern flank as well. So I think having from a not only sort of individual and has forward uh, presence missions, but also uh, as, as, as a collective, uh, making them as a, as a capable uh, force, um, uh, would require them to work uh, together uh, much more and exercise together much uh, much more often, and and that would probably require longer uh, longer um, you know uh, deployments. And of course, Latvia is 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 is, is in the roadmap initially. You know, devoting about thirty eight million dollars uh, for uh, for a new base. I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that will be the largest um, you know base in, in the Baltics. The second largest being Adagi. So um, there's a significant uh, infrastructure investment. Uh, going there as well. So keeping that uh, in mind as we as we sort of plan forward, uh, I think might be a good idea. 
certainly having more troops there for longer uh, on an individual basis uh, increases sort of competency and knowledge base. And, it, and it, it does reduce the pressure on the Canadian forces to sort of scrounge up sort of troops uh, that, you know, haven't been deployed and all that. I can recall that during the Afghan sort of period when, again, I was uh, referring to a specialist capabilities back then it was individuals who were involved with the provincial reconstruction teams or the CIMIC or uh, the civil military cooperation groups or the intelligence groups, these individuals were constantly being deployed because there weren't enough of these individuals, right? There were just weren't enough. So you had guys and men and women, excuse me, that were being uh, put on rotation, you know, six on six off. Uh, that's part of one of the issues that we have. We have, a, we have among our allies, uh, one of the shorter sort of rotational cycles mm -hmm. at six months, whereas the Americans usually are around a year or a little less. Uh, and, and so you have a sort of, large amount of disruption uh you have people who are sort of coming in training you know when they get in the field getting their sort of wits about them then they're in the field for however many months and then they're they're pulled back and the next wave of people come in right if we have a year plus kind of deployment cycle for people who are you know, have a they live in a barracks that are maybe with their families they obviously keep that competency you have a sort of chain of uh, knowledge that gets passed uh, passed along to individuals and i've seen it's a much more comfortable place lafayette is a nice the politics are are, are very nice uh region in the area it's 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 worth you know it makes it a little easier rather than the sort of disruptive six-month cycle especially you have people at home it's not as uh it, it's not as sort of it's not as enjoyable let's say or it's not as comfortable so I think that that would aid several different objectives. I say with uh, interoperability with their allies, we can kind of maximize the systems. The if we're buying system, we can maximize their sort of the knowledge base on them and and keep them you know ready to go or keep them identify the best use of them or potential best use of them. We are allies. Those are all sort of those would all be benefits of a longer deployment cycle if if, if we're doing it. And that would be obviously as I was saying before, keeping keeping a more permanent presence that 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 has the forces rather than doing a rotational system. Uh, we're coming slowly to the end, but uh, I want to ask two, um, two questions. One, uh, and then of course, in the sort of, sort of last uh, sort of wrap up uh, ideas. The first one is, so when you look at the roadmap, um, what's the, the most important thing that seems to be missing uh, from that that has been laid out? What, if, if it was you who were drafting it up, what would you include? Um, uh, in that in that roadmap that has been announced, that that, that took a while, um, but to, <laughs> to announce and uh, you know as you point out, it's the, the the detail is uh, the devil is in the details. Let's see how the implementation would go, including the the amounts being attached to it and so on and so forth. Uh, but what 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 seems to be the missing uh, missing element that that you think uh, needs to be there? That's that's number one. Number two is then again um, bring it back to for, for the Canadian uh, audience. Why? And uh, fulfilling this particular set of commitments is important for Canada and Canadians in in, in protecting our um, our security and prosperity. I'll take the second one first because I sure. think it's it, it kind of it, it's a capstone, right? Yes. Uh, I think Canada, and certainly since uh, the Second World War, even before that, has always kind of seen themselves as a good ally, right? Canadians certainly believe that's the case. I think we're a, a multinational or a, a multinational sort of you know uh, country with uh, with different ethnic groups that kind of brought it from different uh, different places and 
and many many of us see sort of like a child of the the international sphere right and and being part of nato has helped us sort of maintain our position as a is a good security partner with our allies within the international sphere as a source of stability and and sort of uh, a source of stability and also a way for it to increase our prosperity right uh, we have you have a stable international sphere you have stable trade and canada is basically one of the net beneficiaries of this economic international system that has existed since since world war ii if not uh, if not later so with that being the case i think canada requires Canada needs to sort of Canada wants Canadians want to sort of be a part of that. I think Canadian governments have long communicated that we are a good partner. We are going to be effective and 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 that and and this is a really really key area where we can do that if done right. That the Eastern European nations or states that are part of NATO are in dire fear of their own political situation, given that oh, they've just watched what's happening in in Ukraine. Uh, and, and they want to feel reassured that Canada and more broadly the West, the Western European and North America are, are there to sort of sustain them as they've been part of this group. Uh, they are spending quite a lot of money and resources in order to defend themselves, but they can't do it alone against Russian aggression, potential Russian aggression, I should say. So I, I think that Canada has the sort of has the sort of responsibility as part of NATO as, as, and in a broader view as it's being a good international partner to sustain to help to ensure to sustain their security and, and sustain the security that more broadly that sort of sustains our own, you know, political and economic sort of benefits or prosperity. And I think that's part of, you know, from a very broad level, this is one place where we are clearly able to, if we actually put the resources, we're clearly able to help these countries and, and help that broader objective. Yeah. So actually, you know, defending Canada and Canadian uh, prosperity and security starts with our allies' security over there as, as, as you know, your Atlantic uh, community and that particular relationship is, is, is very you know, central. I mean, if you look at it, you know, U.S. relationship with uh, is, is, of course, the, the most important relationship that, that Canada has. But it has also the Euro-Atlantic component, which heavily also is related with with the US and our relationship with the US. So being there for our allies is is also self-interest for us to defend uh, Canada in the Baltics, that it starts there um, so that we are our prosperity and security is uh, is is ensured um, on this side, on this side of the pond. Um, Absolutely. I'll just say allies have been the cornerstone of Canadian defense and security <laughs> policy since 1940. Uh, and even before that, because you know, part obviously we were part of the British Empire as part mm -hmm. of that. But certainly after 1940, uh, alliances like NATO, uh, our bilateral relationship with the United States, is the bedrock. Our, our forces are not even designed to operate on their own. Yeah. They're actually designed to be what's called a force provider. We're, we're a force provider where we just contribute forces to these multinational structures uh, or bilateral structures, and and in in sort of a in a uh, sort of collective view of security, if that makes sense. So yeah. uh, this is the core part of it. And there's no place that, that other than potentially the Eastern, uh, Eastern Pacific, where we see the, the sort of the need for defense and uh, sort of defense capabilities to be provided than the, than the Eastern borders of, uh, of, of Europe.
Yeah, and and the Latvia mission uh, for Canada has been as 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 our friend Alexander Lanoshka uh, wrote last year uh, for Inside Policy, an unsung song of success in the sense that it has been you know it's 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 as I pointed out one of the most diverse uh, missions with 10, 11 uh, nations taking part. Uh, it has been you know more or less no problem uh, mission, no scandals, no nothing. It's one of the largest. Uh, well, it is the largest in a Canadian mission. Be civilian or military uh, that right now exist uh, in that sense being being deployed there. Um, so it has been uh, and it has been very much uh, appreciated uh, by our Latvian uh, Latvian hosts uh, you know, from societal level to the political level. So it has been a, a, a great support the learning experience, but also you know leading by example ex uh, experience uh, for I, the Canadian forces. Well. I think there's another way you can look at this, and this is a very sort of uh, brass tax kind of view is uh, if you think back to the years where you had the Trump administration sort of uh, levying tariffs and whatnot, one of the consistent arguments that Canadian policymakers made when they talked to America is like, look, we're a good ally. We were, we were there on your, with you in Afghanistan, shoulder to shoulder. Why are you doing it to us? Why, mm -hmm. why are you claiming we're, this is a nasty issue to our country? That's the case. Now I know, in the recent years here, we've seen, or the recent months here, weeks here, I should say, uh, you've seen uh, reports of the United States where the United States don't see that as the case, that this is, that Canada, you know, we can talk about the Wall Street Journal article or the yeah. Discord leaks that came on the Washington Post about, you know, Canada's uh, comments at, at various NATO summits. That makes it dif more difficult to sort of have a sort of transactional relationship uh, with congressional uh individuals not just i say not just the executive like not just the administration when we're trying to do economic sort of relationships but at a, at a sort of even further down at, at a lower level as the congress or uh sort of who are key for these things we can go and say look we are here we are we're applying this and if we're not seeing that it makes it a little bit harder it may not be a hundred percent you may not be able to draw a direct line to it but certainly when we're, if you think about something like softwood lumber or something like that, and you talk to them and say, look, we're here, we're supporting you. We're, you know, our broader aims and we're paying our fair share. It makes it easy. Whereas like if one, if you have a discussion here that talks about, again, like on a negotiating this and Ken is not seen as the case, they're going to bring that up because they say, you know, may, they may have their own constituents who want to say, well, you know, this area I want to protect. And the fact that you don't see Canada's paying its fair share and not being a good partner, it makes that argument all the more dif more difficult. And I think that transactional view is one that's is is lost on is not seen because it's, you know, we don't see this stuff put out on the sort of public domain uh, sort of discussions. But it's certainly an argument that has been quite frequently used by Canadian negotiators and and policymakers when they're talking with their counterparts. Absolutely, Me meeting in essence our, our commitments to our NATO allies is also a way to show to other allies, including the United States, that uh, our interests and our word also needs to be taken seriously, that we are doing our part. It is also defending our interests in that way. And I think you know, doing the, doing the, 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 you know, fulfilling the, the, the mission and the commitments we made to, to our Latvian friends, I think will, will going to be an important part of it. Um, last question, going back to the, the what is missing from the roadmap. Yeah. Um, what would you say? Well, I mean, uh, my focus is always on capabilities or it's, and on, on sort of how do we acquire them. And, and certainly, as I said at the very start, some of the core stuff is missing. I, I think one of the biggest ones is air defense. We've had an air defense program on the books for, I want to say, four or five years now. Uh, it's according to the, the defense capabilities blueprint. It's probably not going to be around to 2025, 2026, and that will just be initial capability. There's no... 
I don't believe they're at the actual phase coming up towards a competition. Uh, if I watch video after video come out of um, out of Ukraine, and I talk to a lot of sort of people who are there or have sort of observed it, the air threat from UAVs, aircraft, missiles is is so acute and pernicious. We, we're we're currently watching Ukraine struggle with their offensive because. Uh, Russian air uh, helicopters or uh, attack helicopters are able to sort of take apart parts of their offensive uh, and Canada doesn't have a system right Canada is not being pushed for a system and and this is you can't be an effective party without this and yet we're struggling just to feel this as mentioned before the urgent operational requests are are going to competition these are not that doesn't make them urgent actually it slows it up right <laughs> All right so I mean it's it, it doesn't it kind of causes so many issues so for me personally because again that mm -hmm. is my area i see this and i find it so problematic given where we are and and if you claim to do the, for this to be such a critical mission that we need to do it why are we not why are we not pushing forward a process that allows us to get those critical systems into our canadian forces i i, I think there's a political sort of uh mismatch in this area it's it's just that they see on one side, but they don't understand the other side and a lack of leadership in order to sort of say, we want to get this done now. This needs to be done now. This, any, any announcement with this roadmap should have had an identification for his capabilities. I think it's, if, if you are a military individual who are, or somebody who's aware of this stuff, the, the paucity of, of sort of looking at what we're actually going to deploy in terms of actual military capabilities in this announcement kind of, reflects that in some ways it's a little bit more of a political announcement to show that to our allies, look, we're doing something, right? Whereas you, we're going to have some pretty, potentially, it's possible they may be able to address them quick enough, but I, I, I sort of doubt it given how everything else has gone. Uh, we're going to have some pretty significant capability sort of deficits that our allies are going to have to make up for us or we're just going to have a, a units that are, that are not going to be up to the task. Uh, the Canadian forces will make do as they always do. The the men and women are extremely good at doing yes. that. We've we've watched them mission after mission after mission go out there with you know inadequate equipment and do the best way they can. And and I think their resourcefulness is a key part of being uh, the Canadian forces. But I think going forward, it it really uh, this should have been something that we should have addressed or should have been addressed in this in this roadmap. And it just hasn't. It has been. And now they're going to have to scramble to find some way of doing it going forward. And, and and it's 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 incumbent on the on the government to be able to provide the necessary capabilities for the men and women uh, in uniform that are putting their lives uh, over there uh, on the line and uh, they fulfill the commitments that the promises that we made to our allies and, he, and we will you know continue to highlight this and and the need to uh, to you know, properly staff and resource those commitments so that we uh, do uh, you know do what we say we will we will be doing. And my sense is that this roadmap seems to be the absolute minimum uh, that needs to be done. And even that uh, might be a struggle in, in certain um, certain domains. So there's a lot more work to be done um, uh, uh, on, on this on this issue. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this um, again and again um, throughout throughout the year, because this is, as I point out, it's one of the most important deployments that, that the Canadian uh, Armed Forces uh, do. And it is important for Canadians to understand uh, why it is important and what needs to be done for that mission to uh, succeed in its aims uh, uh, and as, as as laid out. So, uh, Richard, um, thank you very much uh, for joining me today for Inside Policy Talks, and uh, we'll do this again. Thanks, Adam.